All right, so um, our theme um, for the series is Reclaiming Goodness, Truth, and Beauty. Um, and Father Paulinus is going to help us um, with the topic of reclaiming culture for tonight. So just a few words about Father Paulinus. Um, he's a, a priest of the Congregation of the Holy Spirit and a theology professor at the University of Notre Dame. He received his initial formation in Nigeria and went on to graduate studies at the University of Toronto, Canada. Father Odozor's scholarly interests include African Christian theology and questions pertaining to enculturation. He also has interests in African history, African literature, African politics, and questions relating to change in contemporary African societies. He's authored or edited nine books and was appointed by Pope Benedict XVI as expert assistant to the 2009 Synod of Bishops for Africa. So please join me in welcoming Father Polinus. Good evening, everybody. Thanks, Anna, for the introduction. I think one of my, one of the uh, important calling cards I have, I think, is as a Catholic moral theologian. Uh, that was actually my initial training. My doctorate was in, and I still teach a lot of moral theology things, and I write a lot of moral theology stuff. So uh, this is important to me because that is something that has helped me uh, to get into a lot of the kind of questions that our topic today raises. So I have dealt with all of them, a lot of those things in my big and small publications and as, as a Catholic moral theologian. Anyway, today we are talking, I, uh, you, you, invited me to, you invited me to talk about something else that has been part of my uh, concerns. That is the question of faith and culture. Uh, as an African theologian, I've had a lot to say about matters of enculturation. I'll not bother you with that here. In fact, I just discovered last month that there was a raging debate. Some younger African theologians are setting up between me and Benedict Bujo, the Congolese theologian, on precisely the question of enculturation. I didn't know that I had become a party leader of sorts. <laughs> Today, though, talking about reclaiming culture, let me begin the introduction with uh, this since the 1970s, successive Nigerian governments have engaged in what has been termed land reclamation in Lagos. Lagos used to be the former the capital city of Nigeria, but Lagos sits right on the Atlantic Ocean. In this city, pardon my language, but man and nature have constantly just sold for space. Through technology, the human community has been able to move back the ocean frontiers and to create solid grounds on which to build some extremely magnificent structures. Thanks to this effort, we have now what is called, if you go to Lagos, you hear them talk about Lakey Phase 1, Lakey Phase 2, developments, all. These are lands claimed from the ocean. And on those lands sit very opulent houses 
and other playgrounds, especially for the rich and the mighty. We also have an entirely new city, which Nigeria, despite its many woes, hopes would be Africa's equivalent of Dubai and other such cities. The reclamation efforts in Eko, Atlantic City, Ikoi, and Lekki have not been without problems. Now and again, when it rains very heavily, as it does in Lagos, nature reasserts itself and million-dollar homes get inundated with water. It can be quite a sorry sight when this kind of thing happens. The topic you have asked me to talk about today reminds me in one significant way of the situation in Lagos. It assumes that there is a force, much like that of the Atlantic, Atlantic Ocean in Lagos, which would inundate us if unchecked. It also assumes there was a past that is overshadowed or in danger of being swallowed up by present currents. A past which was pristine, a past which we must turn to if only to salvage the present. Seen in this light, there appears to be a tinge of nostalgia in our topic. Reclaiming culture. There's, the suggestion would appear that there was a time when culture was basically Christian, a golden age, which as we as Christians should long for with nostalgia. If this was the assumption by the framers of this topic, then we have a problem. I want to assert that we can never look to any time, any one time in our history as a time when culture was at such high point that we would, without hesitation, want to return to it wholeheartedly. Christian tradition does not indulge in such nostalgia. On the contrary, we have always prayed day in, day out for the coming of God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come, O Lord. Thy kingdom come, O Lord, has been our one way of signaling our dissatisfaction with much of the realities of our history and of all our cultures. The point is that no one time or history enshrines the virtues and conditions which our faith tells us are important for a complete rapport with God and for complete human flourishing. From the Christian point of view then, thy kingdom come is also an expression of hope that all things would be complete when the reign of God is finally established in the ex-caton, when all will be all in Christ. Christians, from this point of view, are incurably hopeful people. They know that the, the kingdom is not yet here. Not even in America, not in Europe, not in Africa, nowhere. And so, they long for, they hope for, and they work for 
and they pray knowing that ultimately the kingdom of God is God's gift. Despite what I've said though, I must note two points. The first is that the Catholic tradition harbors a deep optimism about human cultures, believe it or not. Despite the reality of original sin and of actual sins, the Catholic tradition believes in the fundamental ability of humanity to know and to do what is right. Paul himself puts it beautifully in that passage in the letter to the Romans when he asserts that human beings have never, have never been without the guiding light of God. So they are responsible, therefore, even for not using that light to good effect. The second point is that our church believes and, forc- and forcefully asserts what Vatican Council what the Second Vatican Council refers to as the autonomy of earthly affairs. See Gaudium Espes number 36. That is, it believes in the capacity and the need for human beings and human societies to fashion out a life fit for them in this world without undue interference from religious communities. Let me quote what Gaudium Espes here. By the very nature of creation, Material being is endowed with its own stability, truth, and excellence, its own order and laws. These, as the methods proper to every science and technique, must be respected. Consequently, methodological research in all branches of knowledge, provided it it is carried out in truly scientific manner and does not overrule moral laws, can never conflict with faith. That is not to say that religion does not matter. It is to say that as St. Pope John Paul II would assert, they need help in doing this. But they are uh, the world already created by God is imbued with a lot of goodness. Let me this ask a question, uh, what is culture? Culture has been defined as a plan consisting of a set of norms, standards, and associated notions and beliefs for coping with various demands of life, shared by a social group, learned by individuals from the society, and organized into a dynamic system of control. It is a plan or a blueprint for living according to which a society is to adapt itself to its physical, social, and ideational environment. Culture is an ideational code underlying behavior. It is a blueprint which underguards the building. It is not the building itself. Culture is therefore not the actual reality and historical reality as such. Things and events reflect culture. History reflects culture, but culture is not the historical reality itself. As Father Louis, Louis Betac, the famous uh, SVD uh, anthropologist, would put it, culture is a society's set of rules for the game of life, not the played out game itself. Culture expresses itself in artifacts, 
concrete social interrelationships and observable instructions, interactions, sorry, and in ritual and magical practices. But these are only expressions of ideas and therefore not culture itself. Another way to put it, to put all we have been saying is that although culture is expressed in the way we do things, it is really about why we do things the way we do them. The motivating ideas behind our answers to life, to the opportunities life presents us, and the challenges life give, uh, throws our way. Catherine Turner, who used to teach at uh, Chicago, has listed some important fundamental truths we must bear in mind when we discuss the notion of culture. The first is that culture is a human universal. That is to say, all human beings have culture as a defining characteristic of human life. Secondly, cultures are diverse. For although all peoples have culture, they do not have the same one. They do not have the same cultures. There are marked differences in human behavior worldwide. Thirdly, there is even within cultural groups differences between several groups. Thus, one can speak, for example, of a Bavarian culture as a subset of the Germanic culture. There is in this regard as well, for example, a gay culture as opposed to a non-gay culture, an upper-class American culture as distinct from the culture of the lower classes. All of these in spite of the fact that the, of what, of what one, one may regard as an, a dominant American culture which is shared by all. In this case, <clears throat> culture functions as the specific pattern of behaviors which distinguishes any society from all others. Because it is specific to a group, a culture is often considered as the entire way of life of a specific group, comprising the things people have, the things they do, and what they think. Fifth, culture is, an obvious, is obviously a human creation. God does not make cultures. Human beings do. This is an important point, which... Uh, an important point for our discussion here tonight. Human beings are responsible for the types of cultures they create. And as Pope St. John Paul II would often remark, it means that human cultures bear the imprint of human, of human beings. And that we are capable of, we are an interesting bunch of creatures, you know. We are capable of living the most noble mark on what we touch, but we are also, uh, because we are sinful, we are also capable of living uh, not so noble marks, you know what I mean, on what we do, and so on. So, uh, so the cultures bear the imprint of the human creator for good or for ill. Finally, Although individuals are formed by the culture of their societies through socialization, individuals and groups can influence the, and reshape the cultures of their societies through their activities over a period of time, resulting in the erosion of some previous ways of thinking or doing things, the addition of some new ways of doing or thinking, 
or the accentuation of some latent but often neglected aspects of being human in a particular society. In this way, people can speak of cultural decay or decline, and period, they can also speak of periods of high culture or low culture within a society. We are never here. We are always moving up and down and on this thing. Let us talk about the church and culture. And I'm going to uh, refer specifically to Gaudium Espes. Everybody knows what Gaudium Espes is. Yeah. So uh, I'm, there is uh, a lot of other writings on this, um, but I'm staying with Gaudium Espes, and then I will sp stay with Pope St. John Paul II. I find him very interesting on these matters. <clears throat> Gaudium Espes has an elaborate treatment on the church and culture. Culture is understood in this text as all those things which go to the refining and developing of humanity's diverse mental and physical endowments. Through human knowledge and labor, through the humanization of social life both in the family and in the whole community, through the improvement of customs and institutions. Human beings express through their works the great spiritual experiences and aspirations of humanity through the ages, and they communicate and preserve these experiences and knowledge to be an inspiration for the progress of many people, even of all humanity. This is from Gaudium Espes, number 53. Gaudium Espes also acknowledges that in every nation and among various groups, there, are, there is a growing number of men and women who are architects and molders of their community's culture. This is an important point, which Pope John Paul II takes up again later on in, uh, uh, in his encyclical, Redemptoris Missio. He calls these people culture creators or the new Areopagites. Pope John Paul II will speak later of the importance of this group. Although the church in its, in its pilgrimage to the heavenly city seeks and values the things that are above, Yet Christians are involved in various ways in working with everyone for the establishment of a more humane world and in assigning to human culture its honored role in the complete vocation of humanity. This is from Gaudium Espes 57. The church is not tied exclusively and indissolubly to any race or any nation or to any way of life or, or to any set of customs, ancient or modern. The church is not beholden to any culture. Irrevocably. Rather, the church is sent to all nations. Since culture flows from humanity's rational and social nature, it has continued need of proper freedom of development and the legitimate possibility of autonomy according to its principles. This is to say that provided, I'm quoting Gaudium Space 59 here, this is to say that provided they respect the moral order and the common interest, people should be entitled to seek after truth to express and make their opinion their, known their opinions, to engage in whatever art they please, and finally, that they should be accurately informed about matters of public interest. Gaudium Espes acknowledges that even though the church has contributed a great deal to the development of culture, there have been difficulties in the way of harmonizing culture with Christian thought. This is for a number of reasons. For example, recent discoveries in science, in history and philosophy 
bring up new problems which demand the urgent and efficient attention, in the, uh, as this book says, uh, this text says, of theologians and other thinkers in the church. Theologians and Christian philosophers should, according to this text, develop more efficient ways of communicating doctrine to the people of God, to the people of today, for the deposit of truths of faith are one thing, the manner of expressing them, provided their sense and meaning are retained, is quite another. This is from Gaudium Espec 62. Gaudium Espec seems sometimes to suggest that where there are difficulties between the faith and culture, the issue is more with the way the faith is presented to the culture of today. Thus, every effort should be made, according to this text, in such circumstances to make artists or scientists and other culture creators feel understood by the church in their work and to encourage them, while enjoying a reasonable standard of freedom to enter into happier relationships with the Christian community. This is precisely one of the uh, criticisms many people had or have of this text, of the God respects that it is too lenient, too rosy, <laughs> and too accepting of culture, of modern day culture. We have a slightly different take from John Paul II on issues of culture and faith. John Paul II was always an insightful critic of modern culture. He had, as, I mean, I don't want to rehearse his history, but he was a boxer, he was a footballer. <laughs> he was a theater guy, he was an artist, you know? So he was, he was a poet. So even before he became Pope or anything like that, he was already a man, a person of cultures in many ways. And so in his life as a Pope, he had a lot to say, both as a scholar and as a, and as a, a, a pastor. In line with the Second Vatican Council, he believed that there is much good in human culture as the product of the human spirit. However, although there is much to rejoice about in human culture with its, its technological progress and progress in other areas, there is also much cause for worry. For example, he often spoke of a culture of consumerism in the modern world, which can be damaging to the physical and spiritual well-being of the individual and society. Look at every, everything he wrote. There was always an aspect he was always concerned for what the culture was doing or what the culture was going to, whether it be about work, whether it be about development, about anything. One of the most incisive, uh, one of the areas where he most, uh, he spoke a lot about contemporary culture was in the text you all know, Evangelium Vitae. In this text, we have a continuation of the papal critique of modern culture regarding human life. Evangelium Vitae speaks of a modern conspiracy against human life, a conspiracy which is so widespread, it says, that it constitutes a cultural pattern that can be best described as a culture of death. You all know this very well. The characteristics of this culture, according to John Paul II, are widespread abortion, which is supported with enormous sums of money meant to discover newer and more efficient ways of killing the fetus in the womb 
without recourse to medical assistance, the perfection of techniques of artificial reproduction, which in fact separates, the, separates procreation from the fully human context of the conjugal act, leading in turn to the production of the so-called spare embryos, which are destroyed or used for research under the pretext of scientific or medical progress. Another characteristic of this culture is an infanticide which denies basic care to babies born with, with serious handicaps or illnesses. A Promethean attitude which leads people to think that they can control life and death by taking decisions about them in their own hands. This attitude, he says, is especially evident in the spread of euthanasia disguised and surreptitious or practiced openly and even legally employed as a means to eliminate malformed babies, the severely handicapped, the disabled, the elderly, especially when they are not self-sufficient and the terminally ill. The culture of death is also evident in what the Pope refers to as the anti-birth policies, which include contraception, sterilization, abortion, and other procedures which are employed to force down the birth rate and stem the so-called population explosion. These policies, which have resulted in a disturbing decline or collapse of the birth rate in the developed world, are being foisted on poor countries which have a high rate of population growth, difficult to sustain in the context of low economic and social development, and even sometimes extreme underdevelopment. Pope John Paul II strongly argues that the culture of death is the symptom of a much deeper malaise, that is, secularism, a situation where more and more people think and live as if God does not exist. Secularism, according to him, manifests itself in ways, various ways, including the denial of transcendent truth in obedience to which the human person achieves her full destiny, widespread individualism, and an exaggerated notion of human autonomy, which absolutizes freedom by detaching it from truth, the widespread denial of moral absolutes, and a cultural situation where, to quote him, everything is negotiable, everything is open to bargaining, even the first of the fundamental rights, the right to life. Thus, the culture of death is only a part of a larger problem, as I already indicated. To this situation, the Pope calls for a renewed attempt to preach the gospel of life, the redeeming message of Jesus Christ, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. Through the words of Jesus, human beings are given the possibility of coming to complete knowledge of truth concerning the value and meaning of human life by coming to learn, to love, serve, and promote life. The gospel of life, the Pope says, includes everything that human experience and reason tell us about the value of human life, accepting it, purifying it, exalting it, and bringing it to fulfillment. One area of our culture, unforeseen by the Pope at the time he wrote all of this, in his two encyclicals, which I've been citing above, which is severely being impacted by secularism today, is in the area of sex and sexuality. In the past 20 years or so, 
the world has witnessed an increasing movement towards the acceptance of same-sex marriage as normative. Some of the Christian churches themselves have come under serious attacks for refusing to accept the entirety of mostly Western society's position on this issue or for questioning society's position on the matter. From formerly predominantly Catholic Ireland to Canada, the United States, and recently and Australia, Western societies have increasingly shown support for homosexual unions as normatively marital unions. On the other hand, some persons within these societies and even governments within these places consider anyone who holds a contrary view on this matter as close-minded and homophobic. Even within the Christian community, the acceptance of homosexual unions as equally marital unions has become increasingly high. Theologians, priests, bishops, and other church workers, and even Episcopal conferences appear increasingly reluctant to question the basic assumptions behind the movement for same-sex marriage, which is that no one should ever be prohibited from marrying whomever he or she loves. This assumption, of course, runs headlong against the previous and long-held position of the churches that sexual difference is morally significant, that sex in marriage has a purpose, that man and woman are complementary in their anatomical, psychological, and spiritual makeup, and that as Christians we understand that God made them from the beginning male and female, and for this reason a man leaves his father and mother and joins his wife. The same-sex marriage phenomenon is one of the most serious challenges the world, the church, has ever faced in its existence, both theologically and socially. A lot of theological capital had been invested in the theology and, and an theological anthropology of sexual difference, and for good reasons, based on human experience and on the scriptures. All of this faced an assault, which is in many ways unprecedented in the history of the church. The resolution of this challenge could give us either a Christian community in which all that matters is only love, loosely defined, in that loose sense used by Joseph Fletcher, or a situation where love and normativity meet as partners in the search for human common good. Let me return to the culture creators and the impact of the new Areopagoses. Can I say Areopagoses? Areopagos. The cultural situation we have been describing so far are often created, fostered, and propagated by what Vatican II identified as culture creators and what I've already told you, John Paul calls the new Areopagites. You remember Areopagus in the, in the story of the... Uh, in his encyclical on mission, Redemptoris Missio, he writes about the modern equivalence of the Athenian Areopagus the cultural center of the learned people of Athens, where Paul went to proclaim the gospel in a language and appropriate to the learned men and women in their surroundings. John Paul identifies some of what he considers the modern equivalents of the Areopagus, the world of communication and entertainment, the world of science and technology, the world of politics, economics, and finance, the worlds of learning, and research, and so on. These are the places where the cultures of our day are created. Uh, look at Rhythm Taurus Monsieur from number 38 to 38 to 37 to 38. These are the new sectors in which the gospel must be proclaimed. He says, we would do well to be attentive 
to these modern areas of activity and to be involved in them. Redemptorist Missio number 37. The entertainers, scientists, professors of all stripes and in various disciplines, money moguls, and so on. These are the modern day Areopagites. There are three lessons from Paul's encounter with the people of the Athenian Areopagus. First, but there is the need to talk, to talk to them and to talk with them. It is not easy to persuade them on anything. Thirdly, they have a, set, a ready set of followers who take in what they have to say, to show, or to sell. So we did not invent celebrity culture. In this world, there are culture creators and there are those who consume what they create. And as the Pope would say, these are the people we must pay attention to. The question is, how to do this? And in what way, to what end? By the way, why should we bother about the state of our cultures? As we have already indicated above, culture is a plan or a blueprint for living according to which a society is to adapt itself to its physical, social, and ideational environment. Culture is an ideational code underlying behavior. It is a blueprint, though not the behavior itself. Although it undergoes the building, it is not the building itself. There are therefore all sorts of ways to understand life. In other words, what we do is laden with hidden presuppositions about reality. These presuppositions could be religious or otherwise. But they are the motivational factors which guide our actions. No one speaks from nowhere, as the great Paul Ricoeur would say. The church is a community brought together from the four winds for salvation in Jesus Christ. We have a vision of the world which drives our actions. We believe the world was made by God. We know that all human beings are made by God and that all life from conception to natural death is sacred. Thus, anything which deliberately attacks any human being at any point in his or her life, or which seeks to diminish any human being in any way, is wrong and contrary to the will of the maker. The church, in its various ways, has sought to articulate the need for a culture in which all human beings are treated with equal dignity. The social teachings of the church have been nothing but one persistent call for a culture of life for all persons everywhere and always. Despite all of this, though, the fact is that our culture is still in need of redemption and will remain so until the Lord comes. The question for us, as I, put, as I said before, is how we can continue to ensure that our culture as, is as life-giving as we know it should and could be. So what must, what must we do? In answering the question of what to do as Christians about our current cultural situations, we must avoid giving in to an overly negative assessment of the situation we live in or to a too dark or to do dark a reading of our age. Something of the attitude of Gaudium Espes must inform our reading of our times. That is to say, we must learn to appreciate loud 
and support the obvious bright spots in our culture. Through our teaching, practice, and investments, we have helped to build an ethos of justice. We must take credit for the efforts we have made to build a world that is more just, to build a world that has regard for human dignity, non-violence, human interracial harmony, and so on. We have, we have, as a community, really, in that way, to a very large extent, been salt of the earth. Through our teachings on the equality of human beings at creation and the death and resurrection of Christ, which won salvation for all, we have helped build up a culture of life even in a milieu of death. So there is much to celebrate and to be happy about, for the grace of God has not been uh, in vain. And despite everything we say uh, we have about uh, the sexual atmosphere of our day, we have also considered this. Without our input, the world would have been much worse in, in matters of sex and sexuality. Uh, marriage, fidelity to, uh, to peaceful spouses, you know, also. Uh, so it's not been that, it's not been, uh, how do I put it? The world is, has not gone to the devil yet. <laughs> Christ's, Christ's grace is still at work. So I'm, I, I, there are days I look out, I feel very pessimistic, but there are days I look out and I say, you know what? Uh, we are trying, as they say in Nigeria. <laughs> we are trying. We could do be- much, much better. But uh, I, so, uh, the grace of God is at work. God, uh, God is alive. Despite all the above, however, our world The world, our world, continues to harbor dark and disturbing spots. Sometimes it's, it seems that we make progress in some areas and we sink, while we are sinking more and more into some other areas of barbarity. The church must continue what it has always done. Through our schools, to stem the tide of ignorance. Through our hospitals, to push back diseases and infirmities. Through our social actions, to ensure a better deal for the poor and the marginalized through our teachings by our magisterium and the church itself to continue to speak up against injustices and against other forms of immorality and aberrations. At the center of our effort is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Faith in Jesus grounds our vision of reality and provides us the lenses to look at everything there is and everything that happens. The fight for the soul of our culture is today being fought the most and the hardest in the areas of public policy on issues pertaining to law and morality. There is widespread opinion that one should not legislate morality. This is a claim which we hear often when religious groups and religious-minded people offer an opinion or a point of view on moral questions or on questions of law and public policy. Given this widespread opinion that one cannot and should not legislate morality, the question is whether Catholic ethics can or ought to try to influence public policy. As the late Richard McCormick pointed out, it is incorrect to insist that we cannot or should not legislate morality at at all, all the time. Every civilized society does this all the time, and every social group from various points of view 
on the political spectrum tries to influence morality or law through its own morality. Some time ago, uh, I was at, involved in a PBS uh, radio uh, program. And this woman, it was before the legislation on, on same-sex marriage, and this woman looked at me and said, you know, the problem with people like you is that you are forcing your moral, morals on the rest of us. Oh, I said, the problem with people like you, madam, is that you refuse to acknowledge that you also are speaking on, on these issues from a point of view. Like no one speaks from nowhere. So the thing about me, you must know, is that I'm honest enough to tell you where I am coming from on this matter. You are not. You are hiding and you are pretending, therefore, that you are speaking from God's point of view, from this presuppositionless, object, uh, objective point of view, and people like me are speaking from uh, a, a memory tainted with religion and, mor and moral, and I'm forcing it on you. No, 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 no. You too are coming at these public matters from presuppositions about reality about life, about human sexuality, about marriage. Name your presuppositions. Mine, I'm naming. And I am naming them because even though they are coming from a Christian point of view, they are also presuppositions shared by people who, who don't have faith and so on. So this is an important thing. People in this uh, age are pushing religious people. Uh, I'm making them, uh, how do I put it? are pushing them to the corner, trying to push them to the corner because they, they, they presuppose that religion is something shared by low lives, by those who cannot think, and by people who don't want, who have no reason uh, or the ability to uh, argue or, or make cogent points. So, the question, however, is not whether morality should be legislated, but whose morality and what must we legislate? Although, what is good public policy depends to some extent on morality, which implies a relationship between the two, one must also be aware that, of course, morality and, uh, and, uh, and public policy can sometimes be distinct. The two are related in that morality is concerned for the moral rightness or moral wrongness of human conduct, and public policy is rooted in the existential human goods. On the other hand, morality and public policy are distinct because public policy is concerned with common good, the welfare of the good. Only when individual acts have ascertainable consequences on the maintenance and stability of society are, they, are we dealing with proper concern of public policy. So, we come to the debate on public policy with several guidelines. The first I've already given to you is that no one speaks from nowhere. Or as the Congolese theologian Benazet Bujo would often say, we all speak from our cultural caves. That should give us the confidence to insist that our points of view on any matter have as much reason to be placed at the table for consideration as anyone else's in our liberal democracy. Our Christian faith, that is revelation, shapes our vision shapes our reason, 
That is to say that faith contributes to the formation of human attitudes and disposition. So there's a famous phase, a phrase we use in the church and in theology, the term reason informed by faith. This implies that reason is shaped, not replaced by faith. Revelation and personal faith do influence ethical decision at the most profound level of our being. Thus, the Christian community's choice of issues, for example, and the dispositions we bring to these issues can be profoundly affected by appropriation of revealed truth. Therefore, central to any Christian, any Christian construal of culture and what is right or wrong is the story of Jesus. The, the Christian story has its origins in God's relentless gift of himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's absolute gift of himself to the world. The believing community's response to God's love, to God's uh, initiative, is faith. God's stunning deed is total. And, and so to, the, 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 the community's uh, response to what God is doing in Jesus is total and self and radical self-commitment. In this way, faith stamps us at a very deep level. And our faith makes us see the world in a particular way. Thus, for example, the Christian is able, through reasoning found by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, to come to an appreciation of life as an absolute but not as a basic but not absolute value. The essential, through our faith, we can come to the understanding of the essential equality of all human beings, to the need for a special care for the poor and the maldeveloped and maladjusted persons in our societies. We must never believe for once that the Christian faith is the only source of moral truth or that the insights from faith are without resonance in, their con in other contexts. In other words, even though Christian faith is not an arcane source of moral judgments, it has a good deal to contribute to the formation of human attitudes and dispositions. For example, the Christian story is not the only cognitive source for the radical sociability of persons, for the immorality of fornication and abortion, even though historically these insights may be strongly attached to the Christian story. In this epistemological sense, these insights are not specific to Christians. They can be shared by others. That is why, in our quest for creating a human culture, it is important for us to seek out like-minded allies who may not share our faith in Jesus Christ, but who have come to the same value as we have from their various backgrounds. Pope Francis has eloquently done this in, 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 much, in, in many ventures of his papacy, especially with his position on climate change. If you remember the amount of effort that went into drafting Laudato Si, it's even people who don't believe in God, but who understand this, there's a moral issue here. We are part of this. So the Pope was able to go up a lot of people uh, to, to come to a consensus on this matter. Sometimes a lot of people who don't share our faith, share our values in many ways. Uh, it might sound very, uh, very, uh, what, how do I put it? 
strange, but in Nigeria, in many ways, the best allies, despite the tension that exists between Christians and Muslims, the our best allies on some of these uh, moral questions or societal questions are Muslims. Are Muslims on questions of uh, human life, human sexuality, and so on. At least at the doctrinal policy level, you know, and so on. The search for a morally sound culture is a search for a more humane world. In the search, therefore, for what it means to be human, we must learn to foster relationships with the new Areopagites I have mentioned above. The men and women who are the culture creators of our day. Hollywood. Our universities. Our research centers. Our politicians, our bankers, our finance people. We must learn to talk to them. We must learn to be with them where they are. We must, that means we must know what they know, sometimes even better, and we must be able to discuss with them with confidence. One of the great things, uh, Benedict, uh, things about Benedict XVI is that a lot of the secular-minded people in Europe respected him because they know he knows what they know. <laughs> uh, there was this famous debate: uh, what is the, was, what was the, with that great uh, forgotten day, the, the, the great agnostic Benedict XVI had this debate. The man said, "Look, I've never seen anybody like this. I remember the name before, and if there was, if I was being." If I was open to being converted by Christians, this is the guy who would do it. It's true. I remember the, uh, the, the character I'm talking about. So, but this means that we must take time to know what they know in order to know when to appre appreciate what they are doing or offer reasonable critique where and when appropriate. The, another way to influence our culture would be to make sure we enter into public advocacy, not just for our own causes, for the good of all. The church must be the, the one way morality enters into politics. Not because we are card-carrying members of the Democratic Party or of uh, the Republican Party. No. We leave them to do what they do. But we must proclaim, as Pope, John, Pope Paul VI said when he went to the United Nations, we are experts in humanity. And when these people, whether to the left or to the right, are doing anything to, in our, to influence our culture in a way that is not building up the human good, we must say something. And this is one of the best things that Catholic social teaching has done. And that is why it has, it has gained the respect of so many people, even outside of the Catholic Church. Often, some of the people who study Catholic social teaching don't go to church, don't believe anything. But they study them for the insight and for what they can take away from that uh, body of work for, the, for their construal of what the world should be. 
The other thing that we must do if we are to be culture create, if we are to be credible in our culture, is to make sure that we are we too are above board. Anything that brings down the church or that puts the church in, in a bad light makes us makes it difficult for us to have to influence our cultures. So the sad situation of pre-sex abuse scandal is one. But there are other things. Pope Paul VI wrote in Evangelini Sandy that anyone who dared to speak to people about justice must see himself or herself be just. So that people are for people are moved not he said not by the eloquence of teachers, but by the witness of their teachers. So the church itself must, if even as we speak to influence culture, learn to find a way, not in this acrimonious way that we are doing it, but in, in a more systematic way and in more humane and Christian way of being uh, critics of our own cultural patterns within the church. I'll leave you with one story uh, about how this has affected us in many ways. You may remember that a lot of you now are very young here, but when George Bush wanted to go to war in Iraq after 9-11, the ailing pope John, um, was it Paul, John Paul II sent an emissary to Washington excuse me to ask the Pope to ask the President don't do it the President said to the emissary look tell the Holy Father we are together on a lot of things and this is one way of reading the world of evil The Ellen Pope wrote a very terse statement. I've, I was searching for it. I can't find it anymore. Where he said, let those who think that they have ex- exhausted all avenues for, the pre- for peaceful resolution of our situation, let them be aware or let them of the mayhem, my word, of the they are about to unleash and of the judgment of history on their actions. At about that same time, the Catholic bishops of this country issued a statement. When everybody was, when the, the drum beats of war were very loudly being beaten, the Catholic bishops said, please don't go. In line with what the Pope said. Oh, the social media, the people, no, all over the, the internet was full of people who are telling the, the, the church to go and sit down. They should shut up. They should first of all go. At that time, we had the first bout of our uh, sexual abuse crisis, that the church should shut up and has no moral grounds to try to influence public policy and so on. Sometimes when I remember this incident, I'm very sad because the church was the only 
one of the big people who are saying, please, don't do this. But because we were morally compromised at the time, we couldn't, our voice was lost. People were making fun of all of this. So even as we speak to reclaim our culture, we must also, your generation, I, I mean, I have before me here a lot of very talented and promising young people. Your generation must, not in the way my generation did it, acrimoniously fighting each other, must help us build a church that is more credible and therefore one that can speak to the culture with authority that is derived from the clear teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Father, thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned briefly that uh, places like universities and ha have to be um, these areopagites um, to and culture leaders to uh, culture at large. My question, I guess, is what does that mean when the rubber actually hits the road? Should the theology department, as queen of the liberal arts, should theology choose the moral direction of the social sciences at a university like Notre Dame, or should and and following more along that Gaudium et Spes um, model, or should something like the Land O'Lakes statement model kind of lead how theology and the other liberal arts and sciences uh, interact at a university to to the point where we get an I guess theoretically amoral social sciences not guided by any moral considerations. The answer to this is very complex. The situation is that our theology departments today and everywhere have to are struggling sometimes to make their voices heard for a number of reasons. Even in universities where theology was supposed was the first thing to start. Okay, I, like I give you an example. When I was a student in Toronto, Trinity College, if you go to Toronto, was the first college founded there. And from there, the University of Toronto grew. When I was a graduate student, a lot of people began to question the very existence of a divinity school in Trinity College. And they wanted this out. What are these guys doing here? So they had to struggle and struggle and struggle, uh, even for funds. The same thing is happening uh, everywhere. Uh, in our, we are lucky that at not a place like Notre Dame, we still have the founding ethos, the founding religious communities of what? Those of you who know these things know what the debate on uh, the core curriculum looked like. But the, 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 the other aspect of this question is that in fact we are lucky at Notre Dame still to have people, whether they are in the social sciences or in, in aerospace engineering, who still believe in something and who try to make their belief count in 
whatever area they are. And so it is not just theology supplying. Theology alone cannot carry the weight of making a creating a Catholic culture or Christian culture in a Catholic university. People in economics, people in philosophy, people in all sorts of social sciences have to be or even in the hard sciences have to be part of it. And we are lucky also at Notre Dame that some of the best people we have in these matters, in addition to what we have in theology, also come from these other diverse areas. And so that is an important thing that Notre Dame still has going for it. Another, another thing that Notre Dame has going for it is that, you see, even the, the theology department at Notre Dame is large enough, it's bigger than many divinity schools. You know that. But we are still a department in the College of Arts and Letters. That is a stroke of genius, and I don't know how long that will last. Because there are some people who would want us to, who want the theology department to be a divinity school, give them all the money they, can, they want, put them aside somewhere, and let them just do their own things. <laughs> you know? But what we have at Notre Dame and in BC, some of these Catholic universities still, is that the theology department is within, say in our own case, the Ecology of Arts and Letters. That is important because we can then have interactions, have influence, and have uh, in, in other areas of the university, and have our students uh, take co come to theology, take courses, even agnostics, even people who don't believe anything and so on. So I don't know what I have answered a, a bit of your question, but the struggles for the, the, to make the Catholic University an important uh, element of the Areopagus uh, a Christian Aropago, so to speak, is ongoing and it's very difficult in this day and age. But uh, people in, at Notre Dame and in some of these other colleges are showing that it is possible. How, uh, how it is possible can change. So the Notre Dame of 1950s will not be the Notre Dame, as a Catholic university, may not be the same thing today. But people are struggling to make sure that still faith counts, faith is relevant, and uh, in what ways they have to determine this day by day. Um, thank you, by the way. Um, so I know you have some affiliation with the University of Toronto, um, and that made me think of um, Professor Jordan Peterson again. One of the things that he says um, is to be good people, um, you know, you have to clean up clean your own room, um, basically, which I interpret as have your own um, well-established moral compass um, that you can bring into the world. Um, when you were talking about the need to evangelize in different cultural bubbles as they appear, um, I mean, do you, um, <laughs> I guess my, my question is, what is um, what do you think that we can do um, to you know to education to help build um, good citizens um, with good moral compasses who can um, you know who can I guess infiltrate or be insurgents in the culture war for different sorts of um, cultural linguistic bubbles, um, which is what would be required to win. You already have answers. You've already answered the question. Education. We must not leave that sector. 
we must invest in it. That is why it is important to raise money to make sure that anybody who wants to can come and not be deterred by the exorbitant uh, cost of giving a Catholic education. A Catholic education is not a luxury. In fact, without Catholic education of some sort, we have a problem. So it pains my heart when parents uh, complain that it is very, ex very expensive to send their kids to Catholic schools. So if I had the way, if I was independently wealthy, I would give a lot of my money to endowing Catholic schools and Catholic education at various levels. So that with the view to making sure that anybody who can should go, can go. That is one way we can continue to... Uh, people like you, just see what's happening. How many young people like you would, would come in in an evening like this and spend their time after, after school or after work and so on to come and listen to some of these things we're talking about here? This is all part of Catholic education. And so, even if it is just one person, two people, three people we get, it's not nothing. So, education, I think, is the key to a lot of this. It's an important, it's not the only key, formal education, but it's important. I'm going to piggyback off that question. I am a Catholic school teacher um, here in the diocese. Okay. So, when it comes to Catholic education, right, especially in our culture, and I teach religion, too. So I'm currently teaching morality to seventh graders, okay. which is my uh, cross to bear at the moment. Quite a hard task. <laughs> <laughs> in that situation, though, right, like my uphill battle is that even though I am a religion teacher in a Catholic school teaching 47th graders, our morality in a world of secularism, I'm actually not their first teacher. Okay. Their parents are their first <coughs> mm -hmm. teacher. So how do we... Then, as she says, like infiltrate, like be a voice to this culture when what I teach in the classroom is undermined as soon as they get home. What you teach in the classroom is not totally undermined. If that is any hope, you are not you are not doing nothing. In fact, in many ways, you are doing more than the parents are doing. Your voice as a teacher. Have you been in situations where? A kid is arguing with their parents. The parents want them. They say, the, the kids say, "No, that's not what my teacher said." <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> that's not what my teacher said. At that level, I mean, I. <laughs> so, remember the great the. So, uh, the, the, don't don't miss uh, don't underestimate the impact of you as a teacher. So I would all, all, only say. Do the best you can to teach the, your children well and leave that. I can tell you there's a parallel exam, uh, aspect to this. As a priest, I've seen there are days I come to church ill-prepared with my homily. I, I'll, I'll preach a homily I thought got nowhere. Somebody runs into you and says, Father, remember that homily you preached the other day? I said, which? What? I said, what? Oh, you, Father, you touched me. You touched me. Okay, I said, okay. So I sit down there <laughs> and I watch. 
But then I realized, I realized very early as a young priest that I should sit down and go at least through these readings and try to make sense of them and come out and talk to people about them in the way it strikes me. Some days I wax eloquent. You meet me and you say, this is the greatest preacher. <laughs> Some days you hear me and say, what? who is this? <laughs> but <laughs> what is, I, I, I must never do is take for granted that nothing is happening. You know? So I do the best I can to say something about the text before me and leave the rest to God. And I can tell you, I'm 35 years ordained as a priest on the, on the 28th of this month, of, of, of April. I can tell you, this has been some of the most gratifying moments of my life as a priest of the city. Somebody's meeting you somewhere. You never knew this person was in church. You never knew this person. You never knew even, don't even remember what you said. But you said something. And this person says, wow, this, this priest is great. And when I meet people like that, I say, hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, do the best you can. Do you understand what I mean? Do the best you can. Prepare your lessons, teach your children, and leave the rest to the Spirit of God who works. It may be 70, it may be 50 years later. You'd be surprised. It may be somewhere, in ways you never know. <coughs> the most subversive occupation in this world is teaching. And you are the most subversive character teaching the seventh grade people. So we will hold you responsible for a lot of the things they'll be doing in the future. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so so you, you better take it seriously. <laughs> um, Father, you, you opened your talk with um, the caveat, I guess, that um, reclaiming culture can't be nostalgic in the sense that we're looking back to some um, lost culture um, that was excellent, you know, a Christian culture. Um, that's not a good sense of, of reclaiming culture. So um, is, is today's culture unprecedented in its, in its evil, I guess? Um, are we in a specially bad situation, or, um, or is there historical precedent? Thank you. We were discussing this privately, and I asked her to bring this up. Because uh, there's a temptation always to think that a lot of the things that are happening never happened before. Uh, let's begin with the fact, at least in the church, I hear people say, the church is in crisis. Oh, the church is in crisis. And I said, said you guys, what are you talking about? When is the church never in crisis? When was the church in crisis? <laughs> it's true. And I'm not, from the very beginning of the church, from the question of membership, who, who is a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Who was, no. To the question of the, of the very nature of Jesus Christ himself. Is he, is he truly, is he really man or is he really God? Is he truly both of them? And to what measure? To the question of the missions, you know, all of that. 
When is the church not in crisis? We have lived from one crisis to the other. Because the faith Jesus Christ gave us is one thing. Making it come alive in our various cultural contexts is another. And it is not an easy task. And there have been various and varied opinions about this. So I look back. I mean, yeah, we've seen this before. Even the even the even the the scandals, we've seen them before. You know, I'm not saying therefore that we should therefore rejoice. I'm simply saying that we must take a, a long historical view of this. Some people say, Oh, these priests have done what we are leaving the church for the said I said, you never really belong to the church if you are leaving the church because some priests did that and that and that. What about all the lay people also who have, who have scandalized us? What about the church? The miracle is that our faith survived despite all of this. We would have killed the faith if, we, if it was just a human thing. Second point to the question you are asking is, in, is necessary. Remember that the church was born in a in a context, uh, if this community wasn't as fixed as mixed as it was, I would have said something. But I can say it in a context that was as shitty as our own. <laughs> Sorry, uh, uh, more so. Sometimes, what did we not see? Just today in my class, uh, my MDiv class. We were talking about the situation in the Corinthian church, the moral situation. Paul, Paul suffered a lot for what he was saying. Are you guys crazy? <laughs> you know, if I come there, I will deal with you. <laughs> you know, there were all sorts of things, challenges from the very beginning. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you've been you have been your new creation. God has made you. You know that. You know, such things must never be heard about you, or in, among you. The church was born in a situation where we didn't invent the, the, the discussion on homosexuality. You know, the context of the church in early Roman church, in the early Roman periods, and so on, in in the church was quite serious. And name anything. Seen that. Been there, done that. So, our world, I mean, if you look at our history, popes have done terrible things, bishops have done terrible things, lay people have done despicable things, priests, everybody. And yet, we also have had our saints and our martyrs and our holy women and women and men. You understand? So, Take it. What one of the problems in our age is that we are not we we are not historically conscious in the real sense. We don't take a long view of this. There are days when I'm tempted to think that everything has gone to blazes. Then I I pray and I look back and I say, God, let me put this in perspective. That despite all of things, all of these things, yeah, your, your holy hand, your guiding hand is still there guiding us to your kind purposes. I don't know where you are leading us to. Well, I know you are leading us back to you, but 
we, we must go through rough patches and so on. So even our world, it's not it. You know, our, they, our own world today has a lot of things to commend it. Despite a lot of the things that we found out. A lot of solidarity. You know, one of the things that touches my heart, for example, is when somebody is in trouble and people suddenly realize this person needs money. They go fund me thing. You know that kind of thing? Oh, I mean, it might sound little, but people, or oh, some disasters uh, uh, happen somewhere. You see the way our world from whatever, you know, reacts to it. So there's a lot. As a Christian, I have, I, I, on my good days, I'm so happy for what the grace of God is doing. But do I think it, we could do more? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so on. Okay, sorry. I take Thank you so much, Father. <laughs>